0: This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation.
1: One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you for spending another 30 minutes of your precious time with us as we do a special Veterans Day edition and want to thank all those veterans who served in our military over the years. And today we will talk about the politics of the Veterans Administration. And our guest is Tim Kelly, recently retired as customer service coordinator for the Philadelphia VA and a good old childhood friend of mine.
0: Welcome, Tim. Thank you, Jerry. I appreciate um, you having me on the show today. I look forward to the opportunity to talk about the VA healthcare system and some of the other things about the VA.
1: Yes. So depending on who you talk to, you know, I have a Marine friend. He says, I ain't going there. And I got an Air Force guy. "Ah, It's wonderful. I was just talking to a guy. He just thinks it's great. And, um, you know, you've done 21 years of service um, with the agency. and, And how do you see the healthcare right now? So that's
0: a great question and really a complex one at the same time. Um, so, just some a little bit of background about the VA. Uh, the Veterans Health Administration is the largest integrated health system in America. Wow! Uh, they have thirteen hundred facilities, one hundred and seventy-one medical centers, and eleven hundred what I know, what's known as community-based outpatient clinics. They're the outpatient clinics. We have wow. four of them up here in Philadelphia, and the VA serves over nine million enrolled veterans each year. Wow! So. I didn't know that. So that question about how do we see things with the VA, that's a broad question. It goes across the country. Of course, I can talk a little bit about what's happened for me in Philadelphia, and I'll, I'll do that in a second. But just as the background, that it's a pretty large undertaking to provide this kind of care for this many people. So uh, in a word, I would say the care provided at my medical center where I work, it's called the Corporal Michael J. Krasen's Medical Center, and that's named after... A Congressional uh, Medal of Honor recipient, Michael J. Mm -hmm. Cresenz, who gave Mm -hmm. his life in Vietnam. Um, So in a word, I would say that the care we provide is outstanding. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll explain that a little bit why. So the Philadelphia VA, uh, Corporal Michael J. Cresenz Medical Center has an academic affiliation with the University of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. So that means we're a teaching hospital. Most of our primary care providers, specialty care providers, surgeons, and psychiatrists have been trained at Penn and they provide services both at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital as well as the VA Medical Center. So I've heard that a lot about veterans saying, "Uh, we don't get good care down there, and we do. We provide excellent care. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: We could do a better job, certainly in Philadelphia, but I think across the country, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later on. um, What we don't always do well is what they call healing environments and healing relationships. For example, I can get real good care, but if I call and nobody answers the phone, I'm not going to remember the care. I'm going to remember that nobody answered the phone when I have a question. Yes,
1: yes, yes,
0: yes. Now, of course, the country, um, I I can tell you the VA spends a lot of time and energy and effort trying to monitor this exact question about how well the VA delivers services to veterans. Mm -hmm. They have lots Mm -hmm. of metrics that they follow. And one of the more recent things that they've developed is called a trust score. And this is a question that gets sent out when they send out electronic surveys. It's one question that's asked of every time they send a survey. it basically says, how would you rate your facility? Mm-hmm. So in Philadelphia, it'd say, do you trust the VA, the Corporal Michael J. Crescent Medical Center uh, to deliver the services on a scale of one to 10? How would you rate that? Um, and so I think overall, the scores have been in the nineties. I know in mm-hmm. Philadelphia, it's, it's hovered 92, 93, 94 of uh, a trust score, which is pretty important. So that tells us that, yes, indeed, if it wasn't uh, delivered well, if we weren't doing good things, we would hear about it from our veterans. Um, and the other part of it is that, again, the VA spends time, money, and effort doing this. And the there's monthly calls between the medical center directors and what's known as the VISN integrated system network directors,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, the VISN directors. And they all talk about these scores. They talk about areas of improvement. And the medical center directors are responsible to identify those areas and then come up with a plan on this is how we'll improve it. So um, again, Philadelphia, I think we do a real good job nationally across the board. I think overall it's really good care, but there's nuances to that. People throughout the country don't always answer the phone or they're not always as polite as they could be in those kind of things. So,
1: Right. And that seems to be the case. I mean, if you go to Texas or, you know, it seems to be the VA facility itself that is, you know, I guess, questioned or, or you know, I, I talked to a, an Air Force guy this week and he was saying, you know, that the care in Texas was much different than the care in Florida. Why isn't it uniform? And then you're talking, you know, you said it's a gigantic facility, you know, mm-hmm. a gigantic network. Why wouldn't it be more uniform, you think?
0: I think they work hard to try to do uniformity in delivery of services. And Because the VA is famous for saying one VA is one VA, and it's really not. Um, there's a, clearly a difference uh, between, for example, in this area, coming to Philadelphia and coming to, into our facility, it's a landlocked area in the middle of Center City you know, in Philadelphia.
1: Sure, sure. You
0: go to Lebanon, it looks like you're at a college campus. Right. And so they, they ask veterans to rate the services, and uh, my belief is that when I, I get a survey and I've been up in Lebanon, I remember the sprawling hills and how right. nice it was right. and how clean it right. was. Right. And I'm more likely to say, yes, it was really good. Yeah. yeah. I get the Philadelphia, yeah. parking's an area. So <laughs> and that is right. Like,
1: <laughs> parking's
0: yeah. an issue. It's <laughs> difficult, but that's what folks tend to remember. And yeah. again, I'm saying all this stuff has nothing to do with the care, right? Right, right. So I think the care is really good care. I think they try to standardize as best they can. But I think what you're hearing or what you're in my experience, what you're talking about is the differences in those kind of nuances, which are important for a customer.
1: Sure. Yeah. And this guy was saying it also kind of depends on what branch of the military is operating a facility. So he says you're going to get different care at an army facility than you may get at an air force facility. What's that about? So
0: now you're talking about completely different animals. If it's an (laughs) air force facility, Mm -hmm. that's going to be an air force hospital. I see. The VA is not the VA, it is the VA. So that's right. for the veterans. Typically, that would mean that the person was uh, being treated at, on active duty. Right. And so that's like you can go to a hospital in Texas uh, or Oregon or Indiana and they are hospitals, right? Um, right. So, but they're, so that would be a military hospital, different from the VA medical center.
1: In terms of coming in, you were, and it's pardon the pun, on the front lines, you you were dealing people with, you know, people walking into the mm-hmm. door. What is the chief ailment that the Veterans Administration is seeing right now?
0: You, you're talking about the physical ailment, like the medical yeah, things? Medical okay. Medical, so, yeah. so I thought about that question. Um, and so again, that's a complex, uh, a very really good question, a fair question. And yet I think complex and challenging to answer. Um, so a lot of veterans have, are being treated for medical and psychiatric issues mm-hmm. simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, so veterans experience like, things like mental health issues, disorders, substance abuse uh, disorders, post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injuries disproportionately to their civilian counterparts.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Additionally, you have 18 to 22 Americans committing suicide every day. Yeah. Uh, and the veterans between the ages of 18 and 44 are the most at risk. Uh, In addition to those issues, homelessness has been a major concern for many veterans throughout the country. But so the number one ailment, if you will, would really be a combination, I think, of both psychiatric and uh, medical issues.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, So in Philadelphia, uh, I know we've done a terrific job. The Social Work Department was recognized nationally for the work that they've done with um, uh, veterans in creating housing opportunities. And they got Mm -hmm. what they call zero to, uh, zero tolerance, I think it is, or a zero sum, which means all the veterans that came to Philadelphia, to our medical center, they were either housed or they mm-hmm. were on a list and would be housed shortly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is, um, to go along to what I was saying, in addition to medical issues, uh, there's over 1.7 million veterans who have been diagnosed and are currently being treated for psychiatric issues. Yeah, and again, yeah. that, you know, that ranges from, from really serious inpatient experiences to depression, anxiety, sure. uh, those kind of things as well.
1: And in terms of the medical side of it, is it everything, knees, backs, you know, is it the whole gamut?
0: It is. So yes. And one of the issues, I, I guess, <clears throat> one of the major issues would be, and this is a broad brush to it, but chronic pain is, mm-hmm. um, So the the pain management is a uh, a really difficult issue to address successfully, I think, for a lot of veterans. Uh, Yes, so you have veterans with serious back issues, with uh, orthopedic issues. I mentioned about the traumatic brain injuries. Typically, people with a traumatic brain injury means that they've been banged up in the service and have other issues as well. So treating that pain is really a challenge uh, because it's chronic pain. Historically, what the VA did was prescribe a lot of opioids. Sure, you go, take this, take this, and it yeah, I was just going to ask anything. you
1: about that, right? Yeah, and 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 that whole opioid crisis. I mean, mm-hmm. that's probably changed because less prescriptions are being written. Um, you know, so you're having to find other ways to treat that that ailment.
0: Well, yeah, and there's the so we have they developed a pain management team in Philadelphia, which consisted of. A psychiatrist, a a medical doctor, social worker, physical therapist, like the whole team was in there to treat folks that fit into this category, to have maybe psychiatric issues as well as pain management as well. Regarding the opioid epidemic, it hit the VA big time in a couple years back. um, We had one of the nationally recognized trainers on this that worked at the facility, um, Nancy Wiedemeyer. and she actually came to, I asked her to meet with me and my staff And she did it. She provided training and gave us the A to Z on how this thing got started and what the VA uh, has done to address it. And we were headed a curve, I think, nationally on this. Uh, The VA has been, because what they did is they went back and reviewed, literally, in Philadelphia, they reviewed every prescription written for any opioid or any benzodiazepine. Hmm. And they reviewed, a committee reviewed this and said, Should we give them more? Should we give them less? Should we cut it out? And any future prescription that was gonna be written needed to be cleared by this group. So you've got a big decrease in people getting medications, and they came to our office in the patient advocate office regularly saying, They're not giving me my medication, and, and, and I need it, I need it, I need it. And so, because of the education that Nancy gave us, we were able to explain to them the same way it was explained to us. That opioids really just you take a lot of opioids and you don't care about your shoulder. Your shoulder's right. not fixed. It's not any better. It mm-hmm. didn't heal. Mm-hmm. You just had a lot of opioids in
1: you. What are they doing now? In in, in you know without the opioids and without being mm-hmm. able to use them? What are what are what are the options?
0: Well, so there are still opioids that are written prescriptions, but again, they're monitored really closely. Closely, and so the options that we provide now, and this is nationally as well, are alternative uh, ways of treating pain, of treating. Uh, illnesses, and that includes things like chiropractic care, Mm -hmm. acupuncture, Mm -hmm. uh, yoga, uh, relaxation exercises, um, things along those ways that are not, they were scorned before, people sort of scoffed at, that's not really Mm -hmm. the thing, Mm
1: -hmm. and it is,
0: it's a real uh, way of being able to treat people, gives people options to do other things. Breathing exercises, for example, relaxation, yeah, mindfulness yeah. training. Yeah, like more holistic, experience. holistic, yes. a
1: holistic treatment. How are they accepting that, though? I mean, you know, people, and we, we've seen it with the opioids, people say, I need my opioids. You know, how yeah. are they accepting that change, the veterans themselves?
0: So in Philadelphia, they've had great success with it. Um, in fact, the one guy comes to mind who stopped me in a hallway and told me his story. I had known him from before, from coming to our office. And he came in a couple times in a wheelchair. He was really uh, significantly overweight, had a difficult time being able to walk and and even talk and uh, typically looked like he was over-medicated when he would come into our office. And when I saw him in the hallway, he stopped me. I didn't recognize him at first because he had probably lost about 80 pounds. Wow. He was walking fine. And he gave me the, his whole story about how for years he did all the medications, all the medications, all the, and then he got into this program with this Nancy Wiedemeyer um, they reduced his opioid medications. They, they, I think they might've detoxed him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when he came out, they, they gave him alternative options. They gave him a holistic approach and he took advantage of that. And he said he was, he, he lost uh, the weight just by doing yoga. Mm-hmm. He did some other exercises, but he, I, I think he might've done acupuncture for some of the pain mm-hmm. issues initially. Yeah. But once the other things started to kick in, he lost the weight, he was feeling better. He wasn't using opioids, you wasn't using any, any illegal drugs or alcohol, feeling mm-hmm. better. And mm-hmm. I, I saw a changed person right in front of me. Now that's one example, but there's good success in Philly as well.
1: So you were with the agency for 21 years mm-hmm. and how have you seen it change since the time you came in?
0: Another great question, because there's been a lot of changes over the years, but I, I would think that one of the things that I think, um, sticks out for me is the ability for the VA, the big VA central office to listen to the veteran, Um, which sounds, I mean, it might sound silly, but as the customer service coordinator, our job was to take these complaints, issues, and concerns, and uh, we track them and we send our data in and uh, they go up the chain of command to central office. Uh, And so veterans would complain about things like access to care. I can't get an appointment when I need it. Nobody's there. Uh, they don't answer the phone, and one of the things that they talked about, this is what I alluded to earlier, was, and when I do get through on the phone, these people are mean to me; they're, they're not nice to me. Right. So the most the, the previous uh, secretary uh, made customer service the number one priority. Mm-hmm. So that became the marching orders throughout the country to say we need to treat our veterans with dignity and respect. We have to pay a lot. We have to pay attention to that. We have to be aware that that doesn't always happen. So our office was tasked with providing training for customer service training throughout the facility and teaching people about the importance of saying yes and no, being treating veterans and each other as well, treating everybody with dignity and respect. So I think that was one of the improvements, but I do think that they listened. Um, so the access to care nationally, one of the things that came out of that, the, the feedback, if you will, from the veterans was the president Obama instituted what was known as the choice program. And, There was some complications with that, some challenges, but essentially what it did do was it gave veterans the opportunity to get care in the community right away Uh rather than having to drive. So in this area, you're familiar with Philadelphia, area, but if you live 45 minutes or an hour and a half from the medical center anywhere in the country and you needed to get an appointment, this choice program gave the veteran the option to go to a local doctor to be seen yeah, for yeah. a foot problem, or, yeah, or sense. you know whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And another one is the telehealth. They use we use telehealth now as a way of being able to give uh, access to veterans appointments where you can be t- you know evaluated using a computer, using a phone. Uh, so they made good advancements with that. But again, I think by listening to the veterans, mental health is the same thing. They 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 would often complain. Well, what happens when I have an issue after hours? So they extended the appointments to nighttime hours and weekend mm-hmm. hours. So mm-hmm. and this is across the VA. So I think that's pretty cool. I think it's, uh, it says a lot that they did listen to the veteran and responded and provided some pretty good options.
1: And that's interesting because, you know, out, you know, we're in Philadelphia, you could take the bus, you could take the Mm -hmm. the L, you know, but, uh, you know, out in Kansas, you do, you got to drive two, three hours. And I remember that being a big complaint. So, yeah, that is Mm -hmm. a wonderful, uh, wonderful thing. So and it's kind of interesting. You mentioned President Obama. It seems like and and you could tell us um, every time there's a new president, you got a new secretary. There seems to be a lot of turnover in that position. Does that affect? the administration on me? Do you feel that, you know, in your job in Philadelphia?
0: Interestingly enough, I don't think that it does. It has minimal impact on people like me at my level. Of course, there's changes. Um, but I, I looked this up when I, when I thought about this stuff. There's been 15 either secretaries or acting secretaries in that position since 2000, since I started to work at the BA. Wow, that's a lot of change. That's a lot of change. And so the acting secretaries don't do a whole lot, but the new secretaries come in and they have their own ideas and vision. For example, uh, Secretary Wilkie wanted to have customer service as a priority. And so he was able to do that and that gave the marching orders and it went through the system. And interestingly enough, when, he, when it's not as easy just to say everybody has to be nice to each other, right? There has to be <laughs> training involved. You could not do that um, in the
1: world. We could say that to everybody.
0: (laughs) Exactly, right. Let's just, yeah, let's share that with everybody. Um, So what he did was he put it out there. He talked to the people. And by the time he came to us, there was a training program involved with that um, that was developed by looking at some of the programs we already have established. Mm -hmm. I mean, our office Mm -hmm. spent a lot of time trying to build the kingdom, if you will, in our facility, trying to make it a nicer, more welcoming, healing place in that. And so- When they come out and say, well, this is going to be the number one priority, I'm thinking, what's that going to look like? Because we're doing things already. So they were smart enough, I think, to say, okay, let's take what we have. Let's add to it or subtract from it or whatever and come up with a more standardized training uh, system so that everybody gets the same information. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things that they've done. Now that had a trickling down effect that impacted people, but that took a long time to do that. But overall, when they change the secretaries, um, it really doesn't. Uh, trickle down that much. I think, again, this is a huge undertaking for the VA healthcare with treating 9 million veterans. Um, I think they look at the bigger picture and try to look at, they all look at the same standards about what are we doing to measure this? How are we doing to correct it? So they don't come in and tinker with that because uh, most of these things have been established over the years and there is an evolution. There's a way that we progress where we're using metrics, I think in a better way throughout the system. Um, So I don't think anybody's going to come in and and say, no, 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 let's not do that. I got a better idea. I haven't seen that happen because I think that would trickle down and that could have, I think, some drastic uh, impact on, on frontline people. And, and
1: so maybe, I mean, the change you would think would, would be detrimental, but maybe it's good because someone's coming in, they're looking at it with fresh eyes and they're saying, well, I see this and maybe we go after that. And um, it, th- do you see that at all? Like, so you say, Wilkie came in with customer services. Somebody else come in and say, Hey, we got to do a better you know job of getting these people transported.
0: It's interesting. Yes. Uh, Secretary Shulkin, who's from the Philadelphia area when he was in office, uh he did something similar about access to care but again this can't so it's a combination of the secretary heard that from i think from our veterans uh and began he was the one that was instrumental in making the changes about access to care so they do have their own ideas but in terms of trickling down and, and having an impact on this delivery of services that's the way i thought you meant the question so it doesn't yeah. change that of course they come in and they have like the different ideas. Um, so Shulkin wanted to improve the access and the availability and being able to contact people. So we saw improvements there. We saw improvements with customer service. So, yeah, they have their ideas. But even so, even when they come in and they see something different with a new set of eyes, to implement that stuff and to train everybody and to get that down to somebody like at my level takes a, a lot of time, a lot of energy and a lot of effort. Not that they don't do it, but it takes you know a big undertaking
1: but it's and it's but it sounds that those changes i mean fifteen's a lot, but I mean those changes may not be detrimental, they may be helpful
0: no, those things are terrific i think the the um access to care is is certainly something that was needed that was overdue um and I think the customer service as well yeah i, I they do have ideas I think that can be helpful, uh, but they're also building on things that that have been already discussed and trying to be implemented as well. So I think when, like for Shulkin, for example, when he wanted to do that, I think there was a big sigh of relief throughout the medical center saying, yes, we've been trying to do the same thing. And now we have support from above. So...
1: And, and in terms of, like you're saying, 9 million veterans. Mm-hmm. And it, again, it's a it's a analogy, a military analogy. It's like turning a, an aircraft carrier. You know, they always say, you know, when you're turning an aircraft carrier, you you, you know, it's not a, it's, you don't make a left to just go, you know, you got to exactly. take it a little bit at a time. So uh, President Biden, big deal, uh, pulling the troops out of Afghanistan. And there's a, a and I have a concern, uh, you know, about these guys coming back, um, what kind of, what kind of impact is that going to be? Because you now you got thousands more coming into mm-hmm. the system. How how is that going to impact it? Do you think?
0: So I retired in July, but before I retired, uh, we were already seeing that for a while now. We have you know because people get out of the service and they come in, and, so we've seen a number of veterans that that uh, were in Afghanistan or Iraq coming into um, to get care. And they fit into the same category as some of the other folks as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of, the, one of the differences here, I would say is I think there's been a, an uptake in traumatic brain injury mm-hmm. uh, because of the constant shelling and stuff like that. Again, mm-hmm. other wars, of course you had people that had traumatic brain injury from there, but this seems to be a, a bigger number coming in, but you have the regular things as well. You have people that, um, PTSD is another um,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. another I, I think prevalent uh, diagnosis that we see substance abuse disorders, chronic pain um, breathing issues uh, specifically with folks who are in the, uh, the uh, where the fires were burning and stuff like again so there's a lot of uh, upper respiratory issues, sure, um,
1: that sure. we've seen an increase in those as well. Yeah, and I, it's kind of interesting that you mentioned that because your dad served in World War II. My dad served in World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were the big part of the VA. Then the Korean veterans who are now getting old. So now it's the Vietnam veterans that are really, I guess, the bulk of the, mm-hmm. the people coming in. Are they having ailments or issues that are different from the World War II guys and the Korean guys?
0: Yeah. But before we talk about this, if you don't mind, I'm just going to talk a little bit about, we still have a number of World War II veterans on our books that we still see. And when the pandemic happened, um, our office um, decided it would be a good idea to reach out to some of these veterans, the older veterans, especially our more vulnerable population, the aging folks that uh, as a rule before the pandemic, they had struggles getting in and out of the, you know, the hospitals and stuff like that. So, we decided it'd be a good idea to start calling them and wish them a happy birthday.
1: Nice. That
0: was the, uh, yeah. that was the original idea, right? So, so we did that. And then, um, we then coordinated with voluntary services. This became a really big deal. We got voluntary services involved, uh, social work and our health administration folks, they, they give us the names and numbers of these veterans. So it started with this uh, elderly population, the aging population. So we, we would call, and then we got the volunteers to call. We had about 50 people making calls and we called a ton of people mm-hmm. and the calls were, Hey, we want to wish you a happy birthday. Um, and we want to ask if there's any food insecurity. If they said yes, we were able to get food to them. If they needed other issues, medication appointments, whatever, hearing aids, we took care of those things as well. So it turned out to be a really big project um, that had a lot of great success. And we were net, uh, recognized nationally for, for that, for that, project, the happy birthday project. So that, that was pretty cool. That was a really great experience to be involved with.
1: And you mentioned earlier, and, and uh, it's been an issue, is homelessness among mm-hmm. the veterans. Uh, what's the driver of that, do you think?
0: I think the things we've talked about, I think uh, a large part of that is uh, the typical things I think would be, might be substance abuse disorders, mental mm-hmm. health issues. Uh, but just as importantly is the lack of jobs when they come back out, they sure. train for something in the, in the, the military, uh, and it doesn't always equate to when you come back out to civilian life. Um, so employment's an issue as well. Um, uh, lack of social supports. I think they all contribute to that as well.
1: And um, in terms of um, some of the substance abuse, do you think among the veterans it's higher than the general population?
0: Yes. Yep. Yeah. They're, I They don't have the data in front of me, but there, it is... Uh, veterans are much more likely to have substance abuse disorders uh, and mental health issues. Uh, And so I'll go back to the Vietnam veterans as well. And there's some, some, some veterans, depending on when they serve are more likely to have other medical issues as well. But yeah, substance abuse um, like PTSD, for example, was much more prevalent for uh, people with that served in Vietnam.
1: And is that, a pre, is that part of the fact that they served? I mean, there are these guys coming back with, you know, oh, my God, that was horrible and, and yeah. that kind of thing? yeah.
0: Well, it's even uh, – so when I first started the VA, I, I wasn't the customer service coordinator. I worked in what was called central intake, and I would see people come in for assessments, and I came across a lot of veterans – uh, that had PTSD, but they weren't there to complain about PTSD or talk about. They came for some other reason, uh, and it became obvious that they had PTSD. So they were trying to, sh- you know, struggle through it. And, and so uh, that's common. Uh, let me just mention a couple things, Jerry, about the Vietnam veterans. I, I want to make sure that there's a distinction between there's. So that's can be a really touchy subject for Vietnam veterans, guys who served in Vietnam,
1: because
0: mm-hmm. there's a, there's Vietnam veterans and Vietnam era veterans Mm -hmm. and Vietnam era veterans, are. I I, I'm considered a Vietnam era veteran. I -hmm. didn't serve in Vietnam, but I was in during that period. And that can get really confusing, especially in, in the veterans who served in Vietnam are not real happy about even that terminology. Um, so the ones who did serve in, in Vietnam that served in combat, Um, their issues seem to be related to things like Agent Orange and a whole host of problems that come with that cancer, diabetes, neuropathy, chronic pain, um, hearing issues. I mean, there's a whole host of those things that continue to be rolled out, um, and identified. Uh, and the Vietnam era veterans, I mentioned the PTSD, they, that's the group that actually got PTSD recognized as a legitimate psychiatric diagnosis. Mm Uh, they come back from the war and they knew something was wrong. And it took for year, it took years for the, the psychiatric community to go, this is a real diagnosis. And mm-hmm. now it is, obviously. And it's treated, it's recognized. So the Vietnam-era veterans are also now our aging population, if you will, as well, because they're getting up there. And they have things like blood, high blood pressure, diabetes, heart problems, hearing loss, and all that as well.
1: And in terms of the homelessness, it's been very fascinating in the sense that um, homelessness among veterans has been cut by 50 percent. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, why don't we do that across? So, but the the Congress and the administrations have made it um, a point to go after this and, mm-hmm. and, and do this. And have you seen that improve?
0: Uh, I did. I, so I don't know the numbers uh, nationally, but I know that it has been reduced. That's my understanding, 50 percent. And again, in Philadelphia, they've done a tremendous job. They started with things like, and I was involved with this for to, to some degree about housing first, where they would place people in housing in apartments or houses or whatever first, and then build the services around them. And that's a that's a different concept because you have people. I remember these these are people that were that we moved the guy in in an hour. We come back in two hours, and everything was sold. He moved everything around right the back door and sold it. You know, I oh mean my, because. Yeah. The guy had he was psychotic. He wasn't on any medication. He was using drugs. He's like he sold a refrigerator, uh, a stove like so. But eventually that was able to get addressed. And and I think that became a national uh, initiative as well. The housing first where you go, yes, let's give them housing and then they're no longer homeless. And then we can help build the services about the social supports, the employment. know the psychiatric care the medical care those kind of
1: things and that's interesting i mean you're a psychologist and and that was your training and and Mm -hmm. and and it's interesting when you mention that because um there's always that discussion in the general population do you treat the drug treatment first or do you get them the job and the housing and then go after the drug treatment and um it sounds like the success with the veterans was to get them the basic services first and Mm -hmm. then address their issue Mm
0: -hmm. yeah housing put them in a house and feed them. And then when you have that, again, you can, if somebody's hungry, you know this as well. I mean, if somebody's hungry, you can tell them about AA or NA and you can tell them about psychiatry and, and counseling and all the one religion. But they're hungry. If you don't <laughs> feed them, you're going to lose.
1: Them. Yes, that's and, right. So
0: same as housing. You know, you put them in a house, you got a better chance of working with them. And again, that takes an effort. That takes a concentrated effort. And you need people that know what they're doing to be able to do that.
1: And it takes a lot of resources. I mean, you could throw someone yes. in a treatment place for 30 days and, and say, all right, you're good. Uh, but they come out, they don't have a house, they don't have a job. And and it does make sense to go the other way is get those basic things in place, the housing, the the uh, jobs, the family connections. I remember, mm-hmm. you know, working with the prison system, uh, you know, there were three things that really made a difference for inmates that were coming out. And that was a house, a job and a, and a loving, you know, contact someone, mm-hmm. a family. Family member or a good friend mm-hmm. that will be able to uh, work with you. So you served uh, in the Navy, and um, you know I I've always kind of felt bad for veterans in the sense that you say, "Hey, I was in the, you know, I was in the military," and and everybody wants to hear like, "Oh, you were a hero, you went through the jungles. and it, it always struck me that even if you served on a ship, sunny, sunny California, when you signed up, you committed your life to, you know, the country, you were willing to give up your life for the country. Did you feel that? um, And your family was, I mean, your dad was in World War II. Your Mm -hmm. sister was in the Navy. Did you feel that when you signed up? Like, Hey, I'm, I'm ready.
0: (laughs) That's a really interesting question. I, so Again, you said my dad was in the Navy, so was my, my sister, my, a bunch of my uncles served, the Navy. most of them saw combat. My sister didn't. She served and in, in worked in the Pentagon. So when I joined, I, in honesty, I was 19, and I was looking for a steady job with benefits. And so because of my experience with my sister and my father, I knew something about the Navy. I had some, I think, realistic understanding of what that would be. And I signed up, and I don't think I got that part about my life on the line until – I, I vividly remember, uh, and your question really stirs this for me. It, it, this memory of being in boot camp where we were actually sworn in, and I can remember the words and the words about saying, "Yes, I swear to defend this country against all, um, yeah, uh, domestic all foreign, and, domestic, domestic, right, foreign and domestic, yes, yes, yeah, yes. yeah, enemies, all enemies, domestic and foreign, and." I remember when I I had my hand up and I was swearing at being sworn in. And I remember like starting to shake a little bit going, whoa, like I got
1: that right. <laughs> like Nobody told me about a, this.
0: This. <laughs> this is like uh, I got to go back to Cedar and Huntington and shoot people. Like what the hell? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's that's uh, that's good. Um, so when you, if I say to you, "Hey Tim Kelly, what do you, you know? What do you recommend for the VA? You know, you have been in 21 years. What would you like mm-hmm. to see done um, in terms of VA uh, care? Any anything that really stands out to you?"
0: There is so, uh, and this is another question. I really appreciate you're asking. Um, so the VA healthcare system is set up in a way that you get you get put into a priority system, one through eight priority group. One being obviously the best. You get the most services. So it's not like all services are available to all veterans, right? Of uh-huh. course, it's the federal government. So uh-huh. there's lots of nuances to sure, it. So sure. so. In group five, six, seven, and eight, like for example, it's not they don't they they wouldn't be eligible for dental, they wouldn't be eligible for hearing aids, they wouldn't be eligible for vision thing, like so it's it's a little bit weird. So what I would love to see the VA do, uh, and I mentioned this to a couple people and I'm not sure got run up the flagpole and they're gonna change it, but what I would love to see is when veterans turn 70 mm-hmm. or pick an age, I'm 70, 72, or whatever. But in my mind, 70. They're going to have, at that point, you're probably having issues with hearing, vision, uh, dental and stuff like that. I would like to see those services be made readily available for anybody who is a legitimate veteran so they could have access to those kind of services. I think that'd be a nice way of recognizing veterans, providing them with a service. I don't know that it would be that huge of an increase in the budget anywhere. I think it's something that could be done.
1: Well, sir, I appreciate you coming on and uh, sure. we could talk about this for a couple of hours. Um, and I appreciate not only your service to the country, but your service to the VA. And, and I think uh, every person you help, it ripples and you don't see that. It helps their families. It helps their children. It helps their spouses. So uh, kudos to you for doing that and uh, for coming on and chat with us.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This has been a pleasure. Yes. And we will be back next week
1: with another thrilling edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. And to all our veterans out there, happy Veterans Day. Thank you for your service. Uh, you, you, you stand up for us, and uh, we appreciate it. And remember, read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career, covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields, available now at Amazon.com.